Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. The medical device industry is built on continuous improvement. And that's not just for devices. It means for the people building those devices. Greenlight Guru Academy is the ultimate resource to learn and grow for medical device professionals. From quick, practical lessons to comprehensive certifications, you'll learn everything you need to know to keep up with the medical device industry. Visit www.greenlight.guru forward slash academy today to start learning the skills for tomorrow. Hey everyone, welcome back. My name is Etienne Nichols and I'm the host of today's episode. Today we got to talk with Leslie Worthington and I spoke with her on the topic of writing and communication for the quality professional. We covered a ton of topics. We talked about things like what are the common mistakes quality professionals make in their writing, how a change in communication can actually translate into an easier audit, and some other tips that can make life easier for the life of a quality professional. Life is hard enough in med tech, but there's always something you can do to make it harder. So we talk about how to avoid some of those pitfalls. We talked about a lot of different aspects of communication within the med tech industry, but Leslie works with individuals and teams to fine tune their quality of conversations, the initiatives they have, and the internal communications to create a better understanding of the roles and concepts of quality assurance throughout their organization. She combines 20 years of quality and regulatory experience in medical devices in Canada with thousands of hours teaching to provide her clients with the skills, techniques, insights, and mindset that raise their confidence, take their communication skills to the next level, and allow them to have a positive impact on their organizations. She also has a law degree. And if you aren't following Leslie on LinkedIn, she writes some really great posts. She's one of my favorite people to follow, honestly. So definitely check her out on LinkedIn and see what she's doing there. I'll put the link in the show notes. We hope you enjoy this episode with Leslie Worthington on communication for the quality professional. Hey, everyone. Welcome back. It's good to be back with you today. Today, I get to talk with Leslie Worthington. Worthington, uh, Leslie, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. Thanks. <laughs> Leslie we, Worthington. <laughs> we were talking about that just before we got on. Like, okay, are we going to be coherent? There are lots of things going on in this world. But today... <laughs> You know, oddly enough, we're going to be talking about communication or specifically writing for the quality professional. Before we jump in, let's talk a little bit about what you're doing and what that even means to you, Leslie. So what I'm doing right now, I feel like I sort of started a business by accident. I used to work in quality for about 20 years. I worked as a quality assurance regulatory affairs person in a medical device company in Canada. And then as my kids were leaving the nest, I thought, oh, this is a good transition time. I was kind of bored with that kind of role. And I wasn't sure what I wanted to do next, though. In the back of my mind, there was this, oh, I want to be a teacher in my head from when I was a little kid. And so I started teaching kids online English. And then I thought, okay, I want to do more than this. I'm like, what do I know about? Oh, I don't know anything. Wait, I do. I know about quality. <laughs> so yes. then I started, then I started a LinkedIn account and I started just exploring this world and how I can figure out like how can I help people with their communication skills in this space? Because I noticed when I was in the space that writing communication generally is a bit weak. And so I thought, this is my passion. It's it's time for me to figure out what I want to do when I grow up. And I think this is it. <laughs> so that's how I got here. I help non-native English speakers, you know, just feel more confident about their communication skills in English. 
but I'm also helping companies like the quality teams learn how to talk about quality in a way that everybody else gets it a little better so that they can start moving towards a quality culture. So that's sort of the direction things are going now. Very cool. And if you as a listener have not seen Leslie's LinkedIn, you should go follow her because it's really fantastic the way she just lays out, you know, seemingly complicated or issues that cause complications. So maybe let me put it that way. And she shows a very easy way to overcome those things. It's one of the few people that I actually, and I'm not lying here, Leslie, one of the few people that I really enjoy reading your posts that don't always react, but I always love seeing your, oh, your posts pop you. up. Thank you. So maybe that's a testament to your ability to write. So maybe we can get into that. Why do you think it is that that's an issue with quality assurance professionals, maybe particularly that there's a difficulty with writing in such a way that it's easily understood? I think most quality professionals come from a science engineering sort of background, like hard science, and they're great writers for the academic world, right? They know their stuff. They know how to talk about their stuff, but nobody's taught them how to make the shift into the real world. So they've got these great ideas, they know what they're doing, but they just can't communicate in a way that is real worldly, right? Yeah. Especially in the writing. When I came out of college, I worked for a guy named Paul Wanamaker, who was a fantastic first boss and mentor. And he had me write a report. It was for the FAA because we were doing destructive testing on custom aircraft interiors. And I was writing a report that we were going to be submitting to the FAA. He read the report and he turned around his desk. We had back-to-back desks. And he turned around and said, Etienne, I don't really want any fluff in our reports. And I was from college. I'm like, well, you got to have a thousand words, 5,000 words, whatever it is. So besides the irritation, maybe I caused him or anyone who reads it. What do you think are the downstream effects of this science type writing that doesn't quite always communicate the, what are your thoughts on the negative side of doing that? I think that the message isn't clear. Like we have to think of two main things when we write. Who are we writing to and what are we trying to achieve? Right? So it's like, before you even write, you got to be thinking, think. Like, because if your thoughts aren't clear, there is no way your writing's going to be clear. So you have to think, what's my message? What do I want to happen here? I'm not trying to get an A here. I'm trying to get Billy Bob to give me money for something. Or I'm trying to get so-and-so to whatever, right? Put together a device. Whatever it is, right? And so if you hide everything, like if you hide your, well, you know, the call to action, I hate jargon. That's my big pet peeve. But if you hide the call to action, right? People will read this big, long thing. They're not exactly sure what they're supposed to do with it. How is it relevant to me? Why did you give this to me? So I think just the messaging gets lost. If you're not thinking about your audience, you can't know how to write to them. Because you don't know what they know. You don't know how they feel about you and about the subject. Are you going to get resistance? Maybe I should be approaching this knowing that in mind already, right? Do they speak English as their first language? Good to know. Like all these things. And so we're writing as though we're trying to show all our knowledge. That's not the point of writing in the business world. Yeah. You mentioned you don't like jargon. So feel free to call me out because I too am a recovering engineer. (laughs) So (laughs) can we get completely away from jargon in the scientific world or what are your thoughts there? No. And some people have like corrected me and said, oh, jargon's fine. I'm like, yeah, jargon is fine because jargon is words that are used and understood by a particular discipline that aren't used outside of that discipline. So if you're sitting with your engineers all together and you're working on something, go for it. That's your language, right? (laughs) So that's okay. But then if you're going to go to HR and tell them something, 
No, get rid of that jargon. Know who you're talking to. Even like the term Kappa. Even if you say to someone, oh, that's corrective and preventive action, that still doesn't even clarify. Okay, but what's that, right? And so like the problem with jargon is that no one wants to admit they don't know it, Mm -hmm. right? No one's going to say, oh, sorry, excuse me, what's Kappa, right? But it's possible your CEO, someone on the C-suite doesn't really know. They've just for years been going, "Mm -hmm, yeah, we should do a Kappa on that, right? So that's why jargon is so dangerous because people aren't going to say, I don't get it. Like no one wants to say that. So we have to be very, very aware of who we're talking to. You just made me think of something. So we had a new plant manager when I was a manufacturing engineer, came in, sat in a group with all of us engineers. And I said something and it wasn't even technical jargon. I'm originally from Oklahoma. And I said something like, you're going to want to do this. And he looked at me and said, gonna wanna. And I was so (laughs) embarrassed, but I was like, I never forgotten that. And I think, you know, just speaking the language of the people you're speaking with. So how do we do that? Maybe the question I'm trying to ask is, how do you coach people to be able to do that? What are the tips you give people? I think you've got to build relationships. Like this goes back to the foundation. It's not about like what's happening now. It's about like, how do I know this person? If this person knew you were from Oklahoma, he'd go, oh yeah, gonna wanna, like no big deal. I know this is how this guy talks. (laughs) I know he can probably (laughs) string a sentence together properly, but this is how we talk. No big deal, right? This is even more complicated because we are totally in an international world now, all our business. We are dealing with intercultural issues, but also we've got like how power dynamics work in different cultures, how do gender dynamics work in different cultures. There's so many things to think about. So I think you got to really do your research, know who you're talking to. Show respect where you need to show respect. Don't make eye contact in a culture where you're not supposed to make eye contact. To show, you know, like know that stuff, right? Yeah. And when it comes to our writing, we want to have the skills to be flexible enough to adjust our writing. Oh, I'm writing to a regulatory authority. Okay, I'm going to up the game, right? Oh, I'm writing to, you know, someone working on the line. Okay, I'm going to change how I speak. So you need those skills to know how can I change my tone? How can I change my formality? How can I change my words? How can I change my sentence structure? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I'm curious, what are some of the specific problems maybe that you've seen? What are the common pitfalls that you see people getting into? It's kind of like what we were talking about earlier. I think we're too academic sounding Mm. and too formal sounding. And this is often a problem when people are writing not in their native tongue as well, because when you learn the language, you learn it based on the rules. And so it's very structured. And a lot of times, Like in the academic world, we are taught to write passive sentences. We're not supposed to put I and we and all these things in there. So we're just used to that. And we think that's how we should be writing. But the brain has a hard time with passive sentences, right? So it's not just about like sounding different. It's about the science of how we read and how we understand. The brain says, oh, I want to know who's doing what. And I want to know it early, please. Right. They don't want to be hanging on because the brain has to store the rest of the sentence in short term memory while it's waiting to find out what's actually happening. And so you're putting a drain on the reader. If you've got someone reading a document that's telling them how to do something that might involve safety or something like that, you don't want a tired reader. You don't want a reader scratching their head going, not sure what should means here. Hmm. You know? (laughs) Yeah. 
That's really interesting that you bring that up because I can even hear some engineers in my head thinking, okay, I'm going to write this work instruction. Maybe I make the argument that you're making. Let's write it in a way that person on the line is going to want to read it, who will enjoy reading it, whatever the case may be, that they'll fully yeah. understand it. I can hear the argument already where they would say, no, it needs to be this way because this is a important action or whatever the case yeah, may yeah, be. Yeah. And they need to take it seriously. They need to focus and they need to get in here. But that's not really accurate. We're taking the human element out of it when we, we engineers are, are doing we that. Are. We're just sort of being stubborn, like, well, they should be able to do it, right? So it's like, okay, but what's your goal? To be high and mighty and force people to be smart or to get them to do what you need them to do? Like yeah. that's going back to thinking about why am I writing this? I'm not writing to learn them a lesson, you know, I'm writing to make sure that what we're trying to do in our organization is done well and is done right. And it's done hopefully the first time. So, you know, you got to think too, the clearer you're writing, which means going for the passive sentences and the simple words and the short sentences, the clearer your writing is, the more likely the reader will be to think that, you know, what you're doing, what you're talking about. Right. Yeah. Sometimes we think I'm going to put the fancy stuff in there. I'm going to make it very clear that I know my stuff. And all that happens is that it becomes fuzzy. And the reader thinks, does this person know their stuff? Because I'm a little confused, right? So it kind of backfires. It's interesting how that works. When I was young, I wanted to be a writer and I broke my mom's heart when I became a mechanical engineer. I was supposed to be a writer, (laughs) but that's okay. I bounced back, I guess. But I had an English composition professor, Matt Gifhorn, if I remember his name correctly. He told me, make your sentences lean and tough. Take everything out that doesn't actually do something. And it sounds like that's what you're saying too. Yeah, exactly. Say everything you need to say and nothing you don't need. And so you got to have a lot of discipline. Like you really got to have a lot of discipline. And it's really hard to like throw out our words after we've written them. (laughs) So this is why like spend a lot of time thinking and planning, then write. And then when you're editing, be ruthless, like be like, okay, and read it out loud when you're editing. I do that as one of my first passes when I'm editing my stuff, because when someone's reading it, they're saying it out loud in their head, right? Yeah. And so When you're reading it to yourself, when you're editing, if you stumble across anything or have to backtrack, there's something wrong, go fix it, right? Because that's really how we read. You made me think of something I was reading last night at 2 a.m. I don't know. This is dangerous. I wasn't expecting to do this, but the book is on my desk. I'm going to see if I can find it real quick. Oh, I did find it. Page 26 of this book called (laughs) Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World by David Epstein, for those who aren't here. He talked about how the brain chunks things differently. So just the words are not enough. And he has two sentences. I'm going to just hold it up so you can see them. And then I'll read them. Sorry, you'll be able to read them. Here are the two sentences. Number one, because groups 20 patterns, meaningful are words easier into chunk remember, really sentence familiar can to you much in a. So it's (laughs) potentially understood, but this is the second way of writing it. 20 words are really much easier to remember in a meaningful sentence because you can chunk familiar patterns into groups. Absolutely. And our brain is expecting stuff, right? And this is how chat CGT thing has developed, (laughs) right? Because our brain expects stuff and we're waiting for it. Every time a little bit of information comes in, we're putting it into the pile and processing it and figuring out where it fits in. And so we definitely chunk. And so I think one of the reasons why everybody gives advice to keep the sentences short is so that you can do a short chunk, digest, think, move on to the next chunk. If you have a big, long sentence with a gazillion things in it, you are keeping so much information in the front of your mind in your short-term memory. You know, by the time you get to the end of the sentence, you're like, I have no idea what's going on in here, 
right? Yeah. And that is often in procedures. That's what happens sometimes. And you're like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do because I don't remember the beginning of the sentence. And the fact that attention spans are so much shorter than they used to be too. I mean, you can't take that into consideration without some detrimental impact. So, Oh my gosh. Yes. Like reading has changed. Therefore, writing must change. (laughs) We can't be stubborn about it. Like, great. We want to write like we used to. No, we can't. I'm so scared that reading is going out of style. Like I'm so scared that reading is going because reading is so important for writing. And I don't mean just reading to get knowledge. I'm not talking technical stuff. I'm talking like reading fiction because a reading fiction helps you get more familiar with words, what you like, what sounds good, what's easy to read, you know, and then you can start doing that. But also it's critical for focus and we don't know how to focus anymore. Like with that book there, I bet you 10 years ago, you could sit down and read that book quickly, right? Now it's like, (laughs) we just, it's very hard to focus the way we used to. And then also fiction reading in particular is critical for developing empathy. Hmm. And empathy is what we need if we're going to think about the reader of our stuff, right? And so if we don't develop empathy, we can't think, Ah, I wonder what this reader is going to think about this. I wonder what this reader's priorities and motivations are. I wonder how I should attack this kind of, you know, this email or this whatever it is I'm writing. I want to get to the QA side and talk a little bit about how your law degree played in. But before I do, you've sparked my interest a little bit with the fiction. And I have to ask, do you have any recommended fiction reading? What's your favorite? Anything come to mind? (laughs) I am one of those people that will read anything. Okay. (laughs) No, sorry. I won't read science fiction. I hate science fiction and fantasy. I've never read Harry Potter. Like, I just, like, no. Ender's Game? Just, just, okay. Okay, fine. (laughs) Well, I'm going to throw one out that I really liked. I'll give you a time to think. Okay. So, Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky. Okay. Sounds crazy. <laughs> Major reading. I mean, you talk about the social science and learning people. Ah, oh, I think it's fantastic. I never understood that until I read his book. It's just one I want to throw out there. Oh, you can't put me on the spot like oh, this. Oh, no. Honestly, we'll come back to it. <laughs> I can't even think. Like, I have read hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of books. Like, I read usually about 100 books a year. I just oh. read so much. And I actually love short stories, too. But maybe that's a function of me having less focus than I used to have. I don't know. Well, we're going to come back to this, maybe not in this episode, but I'll hit you up later on for my own sake. We'll we'll do a post. But I have a question. So when we were talking about the more readable sentences and writing things that on a more human level, since you have the quality assurance background, I can see some people wondering, well, the FDA is going to come in and read it. Maybe internally we can figure this out and make sure, you know, that it does what it does. Are there any arguments that you've heard where people are going to say, well, what about when we get audited? Are people or agencies going to think we're not professional? Is there any balance there for that professional versus human-centered communication? Yeah, I would say, first of all, remember this, that even a technical document is nothing more than a conversation between the writer and the reader or the user, if it's a procedure or something like that. The regulatory people really don't care about the words in your document. I think it's a mistake to quote out of a regulation and stick it in your document. Are regulations easy to read? (laughs) Legalese, no. (laughs) No, they're not. So why would you put that in your document? Figure out what it means. Figure out the intent. Like when you're being audited, I don't care what your documents say. Obviously, certain things must be documented. So you must make sure you've met the requirements in terms of like, if something says it has to be in a document, make sure it's somewhere in your system. Fine. But all they care about is, you know, 
this is what has to be documented. This is what has to be done. This is what you say you're going to do. Do you do it? Show us, right? And that's what you got to be thinking about when you're thinking about your documents. How are we going to write our stuff that A, we've got everything in it that we have to have in it because the regulations or the standards tells us we need it. B, how do we make sure everybody knows about it? How do we make sure everybody does it, does the task properly? And how do we prove to the auditor that we did it? That's yeah. it, right? It's like simplifying your thinking about it. Like just settle down about the wording of the standard and the regulations, right? Just go, okay, what's the principles behind this? What's the intent of this? And I'm going to go back to something you already said, because it just popped in my mind again. A lot of times when we write these things, we're trying to impress our yeah. boss, the director, yeah. whatever. Yeah. And that we just got to get away from that and yeah. do the job. I talked to somebody recently, we were talking about fulfilling regulations, pursuing compliance versus quality and the ramifications. And we came up with three kind of impacts. You have a business impact, you have a regulatory impact, and you have an ethical impact. All three of those need to be considered. And that's just kind of, I don't know, one of the things I think about, are you just focused on regulatory, impressing the regulatory bodies? And exactly, and you're going to fall I mean- down. I do this sort of, I don't know if it's a masterclass or a workshop because I've done two versions of it, but it's on uh, writing procedures and it's like taking people through the thinking part of this, right? And so one of the first parts is like, who's going to read this thing? Who's going to use this thing? And it's not going to be one person, right? It's not. It's going to be hopefully the person who's doing the task, but often that's the last person we think of. The first person we think of, like you say, the first person is the regulator, the auditor coming by or the inspector. And we think, oh, you got to have all the the boxes ticked. It's got to be good. This guy's got to approve us. It's like, well, he's not going to give you the tick box if the task isn't being done. It does not matter how brilliant your procedure is in terms of being compliant. If someone's not able to read it, it doesn't do you any good, right? But in terms of like making sure that you're addressing like the business side of things, ethical side of things, regulatory side of things, and the practical side of things, I think when you're writing anything at work, you kind of need a team approach, right? Nobody knows all of all. (laughs) Like nobody knows all the bits and pieces of everything. Like if you've got a subject matter expert, that's great. Is that person good at like taking their specialized knowledge and making it clear. Maybe you need a writer to work with that person, or maybe you need that person just, you know, put their thoughts on the page and the writer comes along and helps make it readable. I have a question buried in this. I'm going to tell a quick story. I remember when I went out to the clean room at one of my jobs, went out to the clean room. We had a co-op named Mace. I think her name was Mace Johnson. I hope she doesn't mind me calling her out. She was fantastic to work with. She was really fun. She wrote a lot of work instructions that nobody read except the workers themselves. And she seemed to be a master at this. She had not finished college yet. She was just a baby engineer and she would write these things. And I went out there and I was reading a work instruction at one point and I looked up like, hey, this says you wrote this, Mace. She's like, yeah, I'm kind of a big deal. It was so easy to read. In my mind, I'm thinking, okay, this doesn't seem very scientific, but it got the message across. Exactly. Do you find that other people from whether it's an adjacent field or the beginner's mindset, I don't know, how do you get into that mindset or do you have any thoughts on that? I think there's a lot of fear of like of being different and of taking that chance of going like, no, we're going to write our things differently now. Let's, let's try this, right? It's so hard to get other people to buy into this because things have been done a certain way. Documents, procedures look a certain way and we're stuck on that. And we think we have to do it the way the guy before us did it. But that person would probably copied from the person before that. And you're probably doing things that were done 50 years ago that maybe sort of kind of might have made sense back then. 
So I remember when I first got into quality, I knew zero <laughs> about medical devices or about quality or yeah. about regulatory, nothing. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> somebody just took a chance on me and I'm like, okay, I guess they figured I could figure stuff out. So I'm like, quality management system, what exactly is this? And it was a startup. So I was like creating this quality management system and the auditor came by and said, wow, I've never seen documents like this. And I was like, oh no, oh no. He's like, why can't everybody write like this? This is so clear. And they looked like, I call them like my baby procedures because they looked like <laughs> beginner ones where it's like, but they were so clear. And the most important thing is that all the staff understood why the procedures were there, what they had to do, why they mattered, right? And sometimes when things get really technical and really complex and really high level, people lose the thread. <laughs> like, what are these for again? Why are we doing this? That makes sense. I remember myself when people would put that stack of SOPs and I'd try to read them. We do the read and understand. I feel like it's tradition to break the spirit of a new hire by forcing them to do that. Had they been easy to, to read, maybe they would have retained more. I have to ask though, I know you have the law degree. I'm curious how that fit into your career and maybe how that's shaped your thinking with communication, if at all. No, I often forget that I have a law degree. Uh, it was just this thing I did. So my first degree was science, but with a psychology focus. And then, I don't know, I just went into law school, finished article, did all that. And then this opportunity at this startup came up and I'm like, that sounds interesting. So I just did it. And yeah. then I never really looked back. But the law degree obviously helps with the thinking, with the writing, with the confidence too. And I don't know, obviously we're dealing with regulations and standards. And so I'm not intimidated by reading that sort of thing, right? So maybe that's the leg up that the law degree gives me. And certainly the auditor, like, you know, auditor, oh, a law degree. Oh, you must know what you're doing. It's like, oh, <laughs> not really, but. <laughs> because no one does, but. Yeah. <laughs> That's really cool. I think what drove me to start reading the regulations was desperation. My project yeah. was going to be behind and I didn't know why we were doing this. They said, well, the SOP says we have to. Mm. So I went upstream and I said, ISO 1345 does not say that. You mentioned just translating that law speak or not lifting yeah. the regulation into your SOPs. You mentioned that one of my top performing posts, just because we talked about LinkedIn last year, was where I just took the Patch Act, which was a software as a medical device, thing, you know, as an act that was being proposed. And I just read it and rephrased it. And it was just people were like, oh, it's just Light amazing. Bulbs go off, right? It's like, <laughs> oh my God, so clear. Yeah. yeah. You know, I tell people, well, the regulations, that's the law, right? It's like, sometimes people are like, you realize that's the law, right? <laughs> like that's yeah. what it is. And so it's written for a different purpose than our procedures. It's written for like litigation purposes. Yeah. Right? I don't believe everything has to be quite so legal easy, but the purpose of regulations are completely different from the purpose of your procedures in your organization. And so just knowing that it's like, why would you lift that and stick it in your procedure? It's just not logical to do that unless you think you're going to get brownie points from the yeah. Right? Yeah, probably is the motivation I'm guessing. Yeah. So what's some additional tips? I mean, the content makes total sense. And I'm curious if you have any thought about formatting. I know that seems kind of, eh, you know, but it seems formatting to make a difference in some stuff. Formatting yeah. matters, like whether we're talking an email or procedures or whatever, because how do you feel when you open an email 
and it's just black. <laughs> like you're like, I think I'll save this one till later, right? You know, if someone's got a procedure in front of them and it's dense, right? It's going to be like, oh, or if things aren't laid out easily, if there's steps that are hidden in a paragraph and they have to do something, come back to it, do the next thing. So much time wasted trying to figure out where they were in the process. We like white space. Our brains, it feels like we can breathe a little bit, right? And also visuals, right? A lot of people think in pictures. So stick a diagram in, right? Especially if you've got a procedure that's got a few different decisions, right? Instead of saying, so if this happens, then do this. But if that happens, then do that. Have a picture too showing this goes here, this goes there. And again, we're thinking of the user. Or think like, okay, where's this document going to be used? Is it going to be used out in the field, in the back of a warehouse where it's dark? Is someone going to have goggles on when they're looking at this? Are they going to have gloves on, right? Or is this going to be in a binder on a lab desk? Is mm. this going to be on a phone? Like all of these things you have to think about, like how are people going to look at this thing? Like there are certain standard ways of doing things like the front matter and the middle and the end matter generally is the same in most procedures. But you know, really, I personally think you should look at each procedure on its own merit based on what the purpose is and who's looking at it. You know, if you've got somebody who doesn't speak English outside of work and they've got to follow this procedure, think very carefully about how you want to do this procedure. Yeah. And I guess it seems like it could potentially be a foreign thing. It was like, well, no, everybody's internal, but that might not always be the case. When I was a manufacturing engineer, we ran up against a hard deadline where we were not going to make certain products because a lot of documentation changes had to happen. So we outsourced a lot of that mm. to a team of engineers in India. And that was a game changer as far as the speed. I think that was my crash course through communication or probably miscommunication. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. yeah that's difficult because when you're outsourcing, they don't really understand your organization, right? So like even our documents represent like sort of the mindset of our organization. So if whoever's working on them doesn't really get what you're all about, they might not do a very good job. The other thing to think about with your documents in terms of who might see them and what you have to think about is that your suppliers and customers sometimes have to see these things, right? So you have to keep those potential readers in mind as well. If you've got a supplier and you've got to make sure they are doing something according to your system. Can they read it? <laughs> like, you know, can you explain it to them if they can't read it? So then it comes up. Your verbal communication skills matter at that point as well. Yeah. yeah. You know, the time of day, everything else, just understanding them. Like you said, just understanding the environment, the user. Yeah. And I'm going to go somewhere that I'm probably going to regret. So it's an analogy that is probably in the realm of the esoteric, like you're saying in the jargony. It makes me think of design controls. Just a product development engineer, I can't help it. You can okay. stop me. But when <laughs> I think of design controls, I think, and I'll just run through the process and then we can just get back on track. When you're developing a medical device, the regulations require that you go through user needs, establishing what the user actually needs. Then you turn those into design inputs which, okay, what do you, the actual message and then design outputs, which would be the actual document. And then you validate or verify and validate. Those are five steps that you have to go through. My brain immediately goes there when you started talking about the user and understanding the environment, indications for use. I Medical device jargon is coming to head. So I'm yeah. making a mistake, okay. but yeah. That's okay. <laughs> yeah. Medical device podcast. It's okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Thank you for your patience. I kind of want to go a little bit different. I'm sure there's a lot more we could talk about this. I'm really curious about how you write for LinkedIn and how you manage to do all that. This is almost me personally curious about your LinkedIn game and your ability to do all of that communication. Uh, I don't know. I love writing. 
I love writing, right? And a lot of my posts are written. The idea comes to me in the shower, lying in bed. I'm like, oh, here's a good one. And it's easy for me. I love writing. Now, I worry sometimes that people judge my writing ability based on <laughs> the way I write on yeah. like, No, purpose. Remember the purpose. <laughs> <laughs> like this goes back to me sort of starting creating this business by accident. It's kind of like I'm just like seeing what are people responding to? Like, what are people excited about? Or what are people going, oh, my God, I never thought of that before, right? Yeah. And it's this whole thing about, like, clarity. <laughs> like, everything, I think, gets, we're such a technical group, for the most part, mm -hmm. people in quality and regulatory are kind of technical, and they don't, haven't really thought about the people piece all that much. And I'm like, okay, I'm the people piece person. And people piece means thinking about how we write thinking about how we speak, thinking about our relationships, because building our relationships is going to mean if you have really good relationships, it actually takes the pressure off writing. I'm not talking about procedures and stuff, but I'm talking about emails and something like that. Even if you're not clear, you'll always get the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. If you've got a relationship with the person, they're not going to think, oh, what an idiot. Why did she say that? Yeah, I think we just wandered off. I don't know if I answered your question. No, I think you did. So, And I'll just use the personal. I'm always excited for a podcast episode. I really am. I get excited. But sometimes I'm nervous. But just I feel like I knew you better than most people just because of your posts. And I have a tremendous amount of respect for you. Your top shelf respect. But I also was at ease thinking, okay, she's a human being. This is going to be good. You know, so I'm excited. So I'm curious if there are any other things that you tell or the good, the bad, the ugly, whichever one it is, when you do those master classes, are there any other things that you consistently teach people that really help that you've gotten good feedback on? Well, I think a lot of what I like, this is kind of embarrassing to say, but I basically base the whole business on common sense. That's how I feel. That's okay. how I feel. Because everything I say, people are like, oh, yeah, I kind of knew that. I kind of knew that. <laughs> I just kind of forgot. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense, right? So when it comes to the writing and communicating of any kind, it's like know what, know who you're talking to and know what you're trying to achieve. And that comes down to the relationships and all that kind of stuff. But also, you want to have credibility. So you got to know what you're talking about. You got to be correct. <laughs> you know, it's not enough just to have good relationships and just, to, you know, you actually got to know what you're talking about. So make sure you know what you're talking about. Make sure you understand the regulations. If you don't understand them, go talk to someone who can help you, right? Like just make sure you understand what you're supposed to understand. Know your purpose. I would say for writing and for speaking, have a plan. Don't just start and hope for the best, <laughs> right? Have a plan. And again, the plan goes back to, What's my purpose? What do I want to happen here? What's mm -hmm. my call to action? Whether I want to call it a call to action or not. What do I need from this person? Or what do I want this person to know or do? And then that edit ruthlessly thing. And I would say this goes for communication and like verbal communication and writing. Just stop with the unfamiliar words, the big fancy words. It's yeah. not a competition. If it's that important for you the people know you're smart, wear a hat that says you have a PhD, like, <laughs> like whatever, right? It's about connecting with people. It's not yeah. about showing off. And the, the world is so competitive now. That's why it kind of is about showing off. But people have to go, wait a second, I'm going to get way more respect. And I'm going to get further in my career. If I act like a person, if I treat other people like they're people, if I'm clear, if I'm credible, and the best path to being credible is being clear. Like I said earlier, like when you're clear, people go, yeah, 
He knows yeah. what he's talking about. That's right? really good. When I came to this job that I'm in now, I worked with a lot of customers doing a little bit of consulting and things like that, just to help them understand software, understand the regulations. I was nervous and my coach, because we had an internal coach, she helped me come up with my own little personal mantra. And I came up with three C's. I am confident, competent, and charismatic. Yes. <laughs> and, may, and maybe I need to put clear on there, you know, that just and to know myself, <laughs> yes. four C's. That's yeah. really good. I'm curious because QA and RA are a little bit skeptical sometimes and we are a scientific technical group. Mm -hmm. Do you have any haters? Is there anybody who pushes back or says, mm, or is the industry kind of embracing this a little bit? If there's a hater, I embrace the hater because what I get to do is then explain a little bit more to the hater and make the hater my friend. I did this one post. I've done it three times, I think, over the last two years. And the caption is like, you don't need a quality department or something like that, like on, yeah. the, on the slide. And it's just an empty office room. And I know this is going internationally and some people are not English native speakers, so they don't hear the tongue in cheek part of this post, but they are like, yes, you do. You do need a quality department. You know? And I'm like, I know, I know. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying we need to change the way we think, but it is allowed. Like most people are nice. That's the way I approach the world. Most people are nice. And it's okay if they disagree, because then it gives you a chance, because maybe they have some valid points, right? So I think for all of us in that LinkedIn world, just to be open to the haters and not just suddenly get defensive, because it's hard. And only once or twice has someone said something where I felt like they were basically calling me an idiot. And I'm like, oh, God. So but it's like, how am I going to deal with this? How am I going to turn this around? A, so that this person has like more understanding of where I'm coming from. And B, so that other people can see how I'm engaging with this person and go, oh, I could do that the next time someone does something that's difficult with me. Yeah. It's sort of like a symbolic way of teaching. <laughs> yeah. But gives you that feedback so that you kind of know where those extremes are and how to yeah. tailor your message so yeah. that you're communicating with them. Yeah. But for the most part, People are realizing that the communication is the bit that's missing in this space. I mean, think about it. Every single job on earth, number one, uh, well, we need good communication skills. That's the number one requirement. But it's on the job application. It's on the resume even. But in real life, it's often not there once the job starts, right? And it's hard to put a value on it to try and convince the people that count the beans that, hey, this could make a difference. If you get your people communicating better, it could make a difference to the bottom line. But it's so hard to put a value on it that it's hard to sell it. Like, I feel like I get a lot of support on LinkedIn, like so much support. And I started a group on LinkedIn called Building a Quality Culture. And there's not too much discussion in it. Groups on LinkedIn are, are weird. I haven't figured out exactly how they work, but there's not as much discussion as I had hoped. But there's lots of eager joiners. So I know that's like, okay, they're interested. They want to know about this. And building a culture of anything comes down to communication. So yeah. again, communication ranks higher than we're ranking it, really. Yeah. And we'll put a link in the show notes to that community too, so you can check that out as well. Maybe I need to hear this message over and over again throughout this conversation because it's even sinking in a little bit deeper for me too when you say communication. That word immediately conjures up the image of just a couple of people talking at the water cooler or the coffee machine yeah. or whatever. But even when you're communicating through a graph, like you said, the bean counters or whatever, yeah. to the CEO, that's communication through a visual. Absolutely. That's a really good point. You know, a lot of just what we do is communication, the oh, tools everything. we use. Yeah. yeah. 
Like, you know, when you think of your organization, you've got these different levels of the hierarchy of who's who and who's in charge of whom and who has the power. How does communication work in your organization? Like, what happens if someone down below has a problem with someone up above? Is, is there a mechanism in place for dealing with it? What if someone down below realizes this procedure's not right? Is there a mechanism in place for that? What sort of like digital sort of communication do you have going on there? And do you have posters on the walls with your mission and values? Like how do the people that do the work know how things are going in the business? And how do the people at the top, like if you stop them on the street, could they tell you what your quality policy is or your quality objectives? And if you stopped a middle manager on the street, could they tell you what the business objectives are? They should be able to. But that's not likely the case in most companies. And you want to get to the point where the communication is just so robust that everybody knows what's going on and everybody's got the same vision. Like we're all on the same team. We all have our little things that we do, but we're all aiming for the same thing. Yeah, that's hits home so hard when you talk about what used to be on the wall, like at the medical device companies I worked for. I couldn't have told you what the core values were, even honestly. They yeah. were probably generated by AI from the 90s. So, <laughs> yes. yeah. But like Greenlight Guru, I could rattle those off right now. I know our mission is to improve the quality of life. I know our core values are to be innovative, fanatical support, and true quality. So it's just, and that's the culture. You guys have this great culture where everybody gets it, right? So every single thing that you do, you've got that foundation behind you going, okay, am I in line with the vision? Like everything you do is in line with the vision. And that's what we want to aim for. And that only comes through good communication, trust, relationships. Like, does anyone know about the CEO and the fact that his wife's got cancer? Yeah. Because maybe that would really help and take the edge off some of the conversations when someone thinks the CEO is being all serious. No, no, he's distracted because he's got a crisis going on in his life. So I think we forget to show up as humans a lot of the time. And I think that's critical if you want to have like the kind of company that you're at, you know, your people all know that you were up last night changing diapers, right? (laughs) Yeah, we talked about it this morning (laughs) in the (laughs) stand-up. Because you're a person, right? And so we should stop pretending that we're not people, right? Right. We have to let down our guard a little bit to do that. And that is hard for people to do, especially because the world has changed. The loyalty of employees to organizations isn't there and the loyalty of organizations to employees isn't there. So the world has changed and that makes us have a little bit of a guard around us. So I think we just have to trust people and just go, okay, right now I'm here, I'm at this organization and I know what we're trying to do with this organization. Yeah. And I'm going to add one more. You talked a lot about the communication between the manager or to the lower, the mechanism to the upper and so forth. And one other little piece that I know you've mentioned earlier is not only is that communication internal, but your quality management system is communication to the FDA, for example, about how your approach to quality and what you're doing. So that is, I mean, like you said, it boils down to communication there as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Because if the FDA arrives on your doorstep and they sense like everybody gets it here, Everybody gets it. It's just going to be easier, right? It's just going to be easier. And it's like you will be given the benefit of the doubt because it's clear that everyone's on board. 
everyone's in tune. Everyone knows what the FDA is and why they would be here today, right? Which is difficult to quantify, but it's probably possible to quantify that lack of churn or that reduced amount of audit time, all those different things. Exactly. It does eventually. Yeah. I mean, there's yeah. so many things, you know, I say it's hard to quantify. There's yeah. so many ways you could say, but look how much time, like, for example, I worked with someone who works at a big pharma and she was doing a, a Six Sigma project that it involved like cleaning up the procedures. So she developed this app to like search for vague words, to search for long sentences, to search for redundancies, to make sure that all the other documents that interacted with this document were tracked and the right version numbers were wow. was amazing. And then she was testing this thing. So she took one document and I think it was design and development and it had be like 40 pages of like, what, yeah. what is this? That's she got it down to maybe 30 pages or something like that. And then when she was testing it, like she was trying to promote this app to her leadership. So when she was testing it, she said, okay, guys, not only do we want to see if you can actually do the process, but we want to see if you can read this, right? And we want to see how long it takes. Let's just look at that one little metric. How long does it take? Okay. And it took whatever, 30% less time. That's money. This company has so many procedures, times thousands of procedures. So time alone. And most likely, if it's clearer, there'll be fewer mistakes. So we're not even talking about mistakes. We're talking about time alone. So there are all kinds of ways that you can go to the bean counters and say, look, we're saving money here, or we're not spending money by doing this. Right? Yeah. And for those of you bean counters who may be listening, we love you. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) They're the favorite people. (laughs) Okay. I know we're out of time. So any last pieces of advice or where can people find you? One last thing you want to say? Thank you very much for having me. I have a very tricky website name. It's (laughs) leslieworthington.com. And that's where I am on LinkedIn. And those two places are really the only place that I am right now. I don't really want to go to other social media just because I'm passionate about writing. I'm passionate about helping people figure out how to communicate better and help their careers and help their organizations. And that's pretty much it. (laughs) That's, That's why I'm here. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I've really enjoyed it and I know I've learned a lot. So I'm excited to take that away and I'll let you get back to the rest of your day. Thank you so much for being on the Global Medical Device Podcast. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening. A few of my takeaways were, number one, I've got to stop using jargon unless it truly is the language of everyone in the room. Also, SOPs, or I guess, no, there I go again, using jargon, standard operating procedures are usually written by technical people, but the real focus should be on who it's being written for, who is the intended audience. If the intended audience is not technically inclined, it ought to be tailored for comprehension, not to show off how smart you are. Writing in a conversational tone does not mean you aren't being professional. The focus should be on getting the true message across. I'm curious, what were your takeaways? I'd love to hear them. I'm sure Leslie would love to hear them as well. Be sure and reach out to Leslie on LinkedIn and let her know. Also, I'd personally love to hear from you via email, etienne.nichols at greenlight.guru, or look me up on LinkedIn. If you're interested in learning about how our software built for MedTech, whether it's document management systems, the CAPA management system, the design controls and risk management system, or the electronic data capture for clinical investigations, if you're interested in learning more about this software that's built by MedTech professionals for MedTech professionals, you can check that out at www.greenlight.guru. In addition to our award-winning software, 
we now have a community where you can come join the conversation, learn more about the things we discuss on the podcast. I'm actually thinking, I haven't pulled the plug yet or pulled the trigger yet on performing a live podcast in the community, but if you're ever interested in doing that, let me know and I'll make sure you have an invitation when we finally do pull the trigger on that. You can join us at community.greenlight.guru. If that wasn't enough, we also have an academy where you can go to learn and earn certifications in medtech-specific categories, such as project management, design controls, or quality management. A lot of the courses are free, so check those out and share those with your colleagues. You can find the academy at academy.greenlight.guru. Finally, one last thing. Please consider leaving us a review on iTunes. Be as detailed as you want to be. I'd love to hear what you think. It also helps others find us. It lets us know how we're doing. We appreciate any and all feedback. Thanks again. Y'all are the best. Take care. The best medical device companies don't just follow the rules. They lead with quality. At Greenlight Guru, we try to do the same. Our medical device success platform is based on the latest FDA and ISO standards, as well as the best practices of medical device manufacturers who lead the industry with products of the highest quality. If you're ready to bring safer, better medical devices to market faster, contact greenlight.guru today.